Colossians 1. You want to have your Bible open this morning. There is a handout in the bulletin where you can track along with the message. Also, we've mentioned this a couple of times. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of the sermon. And so we have prepackaged elements at the back on this side and over on this side as well. If you need to get up and grab those for later in the service, you can do that now. We will not be coming by passing those out. On Monday, when I looked at my preaching calendar and saw that we had come to Colossians 1, 15 to 20, my first thought was, great, a short, small passage, we can cover everything in it. And then I started thinking about Colossians 1, 15 to 20, and I started reading it, and I started studying it, and I thought, 35 minutes on a Sunday morning isn't enough. We need about six months to get through everything in this passage, but we don't have six months. We've got about 35 minutes, so we're going to do our best to make sense of Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Colossians is a book about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about that every single week. We've talked about it every week so far. You're going to hear it for the rest of this calendar year. Colossians is a book about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. I pull that word from this particular passage, Colossians 1, verse 18. In the ESV, it says that in everything, he might be preeminent. Now, you and I don't use the word preeminent very often in everyday conversation. A lot of you are reading translations other than the English Standard Version, and you're looking at verse 18, and it says, so that he might be first place. First place. That's an okay translation, but I think it's a little bit weak for what Paul is trying to say. You know as well as I do, if you watch sports or athletics or things that are judged and we're awarding medals, sometimes you win first place because you're the best, and sometimes you win first place because everyone else is terrible. So I think first place is a little bit weak when we're saying Jesus is first place. Well, the competition's not much, so of course he's first place. Paul's saying more than that. He's saying that he's preeminent. If you're reading out of the NIV, it uses the word supreme. So that in everything he might be supreme. This book, and this is rooted in this passage, this verse, Colossians 1.18, this book is about the supremacy, the preeminence, the ultimate first place position of Jesus Christ. And it's written to people in Colossae who weren't quite so sure that that was the case. People who were tempted to believe other than that Jesus was supreme. People who were struggling to believe that Jesus really was the first place preeminent one in all of the cosmos. And so let me mention a couple of things that caused these people to doubt into question. The first is Gnosticism, which we talked about last week briefly. The Christians in Colossae would have been influenced by Gnostic teachers. Gnosticism is this vague, nebulous idea or set of ideas. Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. And so the Gnostics talked a lot about you need to have our secret insider knowledge about the world and the way the world works. You can believe in Jesus. You can worship Zeus. You can follow whatever god or goddess or deity you want to follow and sing to and offer sacrifices to, all the rest, that's fine. But what you really need, the Gnostics said, is to have our secret insider knowledge. And all these years later, it's not so secret the things that they were teaching. Here's an example of some Gnostic ideas. They thought that matter was evil, like physical stuff 
your body, flesh and blood, the ground that you walk on, the chair that you're sitting on, physical things, matter, was evil. And spiritual things or intellectual things or knowledge was good. They thought lesser spiritual beings created the material world. They did not think that a supreme deity, the supreme deity created this physical universe. Why would he soil himself with evil material stuff? He would never do such a thing. So he delegated that responsibility to lesser spiritual beings. They created the physical world that we live in. And we'll come back to some of those beings in a minute. They thought Jesus was a guru in the sense that he's great. We like Jesus. You tell us things about Jesus, we think he sounds like a fantastic guy. But he's not unique. There are lots of gurus. There are lots of important spiritual teachers. And he certainly did not have a material body. Again, because matter is evil. It may have looked to you like Jesus was walking around in a real material body, but he really wasn't walking around in a material body at all. So this is some of the secret insider knowledge that they would let you in on. And when you knew these things, then you were really on track to be a spiritual person. All of this was floating in the air in Colossae. It was in the back of the minds of the Christians in Colossae. One other source of temptation and confusion is what we would just call paganism. Most of the people in Colossae were Gentiles, not Jews. They were Gentiles. And as Gentiles, they would have been pagan peoples. That means they were saved out of paganism. They used to believe in astral powers, animistic spirits, territorial spirits, otherworldly spirits. We could go on and on and on and on. They believed the world was populated by these spiritual beings that were out there and they controlled our lives in different ways. And if you weren't careful, you could upset them and you needed to offer sacrifices to them and appease them and make sure that they were on your side. All of these things floating around in the minds of the Christians in Colossae when they became followers of Jesus Christ. And as a result, they're tempted and they're struggling And they're saying, is Jesus Christ really supreme? Is he really top dog? Is he really preeminent? Or is he just one among many? That's the question plaguing these Christians. And to help answer that question, Paul writes this book, the book of Colossians. And in your Bible, when you look at Colossians 1, 15 to 20, most Bible scholars agree that what we read in 15 to 20 is a song, a hymn of sorts. It's very structured. There's two stanzas that we're going to look at in a minute, stanza one, stanza two. They're parallel in structure. A lot of the vocabulary in the original language leads us to understand or leads us to assume that Paul is using a song. Maybe he wrote the song. Maybe someone else wrote the song and he knows about it, but he puts a song into the middle of this book as he's talking about the supremacy and the preeminence of Jesus Christ. I find that interesting. That right in the middle of a letter, he puts a hymn right in the middle. He puts a song right in the middle. And if you'll let me this morning, I want to chase one, I think, relevant rabbit trail in thinking about Colossians, and thinking about the importance of this passage, the preeminence of Jesus, and how Paul is driving that home through a song. One of my favorite pastors is a man named Alistair Begg. He's a pastor in Cleveland, Ohio. 
This is a quote from Begg. If you want to understand a church's theology, you need to hear them sing. If you want to understand a church's theology, what is it they believe about the Bible, about God, about salvation, about Jesus, about our relationship with God? If you really want to know what they believe, you need to listen to them sing. I mean, you could look at their statement of faith, their doctrinal statement, and read it. What do they believe? This is their doctrinal statement. You could listen to their Sunday school teachers and their pastor preach and teach, and you could say, well, they're telling us what they believe. But I think Beg is right. If you really want to get down to the ground level, beyond the theoretical doctrinal statement that supposedly everyone agrees to, and you want to know what the people really believe, what their real theology is all about, listen to them sing. I want to suggest to you that picking songs for Sunday morning corporate worship is not an easy task. It's pretty easy for me to preach on Sunday mornings because I just pick a book and I say, okay, this is the next passage up. Here we go. I don't have to think about that very much. I get an easy assignment. There's no easy way to pick songs for Sunday morning worship. It's a tricky, tricky task. It requires a lot of wisdom. Some people assume, well, it's easy. You just turn on Spotify, find a Christian channel. You turn on Air Love or Air One, K-Love. You can tell how often I listen to Air Love. You turn it on the radio. You listen to whatever they're singing, that's what we're going to sing. But here's the thing. There's a lot of songs written for the radio and concerts that are absolutely worthless when it comes to congregational singing. People can't sing them, so you can't just do that. If you want to put on a concert on Sunday morning, you can do that. But if you want the congregation to sing, that's not the best approach. So some people say, well, you just find the catchiest tunes, the songs that everybody can sing. Nobody will have any trouble singing these songs, and those are the ones you sing. Well, that's fine, except for sometimes you listen to those songs and you actually think about what those songs say And as teachers of God's word, we step back and say, but we don't actually believe that. I mean, it's in the song, and it rhymes, and it really rounds out the bridge in a powerful way, but it's not really what we believe. Or it's written by an individual who has absolutely horrendous theology. And as worship leaders, somebody like Tyler or Jake or whoever stands up and says, if we sing that song... It may just have a small little issue, but that turns our people onto them. And them, those, they're dangerous. They don't teach the Word of God. So you have to be really, really careful. There's other songs that just have absolutely rock-solid theology, but it's so hard to sing them because there's so many words and it moves so fast. You can't think about what you're singing, and you just sort of get lost in trying to keep up. And It's not really all that great. Now, let me make it all more complicated. Okay, I'm looking around the room this morning. Some of you are grayer than others. Some of you are younger than others. I won't name any names or point any fingers, but you're not all the same age. And let me tell you what makes the whole thing really hard is one generation tends to say, well, I find this style of music and this type of song really easy and natural to sing But guess what? A different generation doesn't agree with you. And they find that really hard to sing and something else really easy to sing. So it's a really tricky prospect. How do we decide what we're going to sing? Look, I'm thankful for the guys 
who lead us in worship and have led us in worship at Emmanuel since I've been here. Let me just tell you a couple of examples why, okay? Tyler led us in worship for about five years, Tyler Mintz. Do you remember when we went through the book of Psalms in a Sunday morning sermon series? Almost every week we sang Psalm 1, word for word Psalm 1. It's not the catchiest tune in the world. Why do we do it? Nobody's singing it on the radio, we did it because Tyler understood we're going to sing the word of God and we're going to drill it into your mind and your heart. When we went through the book of Philippians, I preached a sermon series through Philippians. Tyler wrote two songs straight out of the text of Philippians. Why? Because he was bored and had nothing else to do? No. It's because he understood we've got to get this into their minds and into their hearts. And song is a powerful way to do that. I'm thankful for a guy like Jake Graves. Jake's been leading us in worship the last couple years, and Jake is like any worship leader that you'll ever meet. He gets lots of suggestions of, hey, Jake, we should sing this song. Hey, Jake, did you ever think about doing this song? Hey, Jake, I was driving down 42nd Street, and I heard this song. It's great. You should do it. And you know what Jake says a lot of the time in a very nice, friendly way? No. Thank you for your suggestion. No. It's not good for a congregation to sing it. We're not here to do a concert. We're here to lead the people in singing. Or the theology is just terrible in that song. You might like it, but it's terrible. We're not going to sing it. Or it's just too wordy and you can't keep up and, and think about what you're at. No, we're not going to do that. I'm thankful for Mark Dawson and Tony Paris and Shannon Blau who lead us on Wednesday nights. Wednesday nights, adults in this room, we sing hymns. We don't just sing any hymns. We go back through the hymnal and we say, this is a good hymn. This is a hymn that teaches good doctrine, sound theology, things that people need to know, things that they need to understand. Why am I spending all this time talking about songs? Here's the reason. In 10, 15, 20 years, when you have forgotten all of my brilliant sermon points and you don't remember all the words that I asked you to fill in on blanks and put up on the screen, all that's going to go. You're not going to remember most of those things specifically. I mean, I hope that they form a, a foundation in your heart and your mind for the truth of God's word, but the specifics you're going to forget. You know it and I know it. When that happens and you forget all that stuff, guess what? Those songs that we sing in this room will be in your head and in your heart forever for good or for bad. That's a heavy responsibility for people picking songs for church. It's a lot heavier than just pick something cool off the radio. It's a lot heavier than just pick something that people like and everyone sort of wants to hear. You are taking the truth or you're taking a lie and you are drilling it into people's hearts so deep that it is not easy to get it out. You know this when you turn on the radio or you walk in this room and you hear a song you haven't heard in 20 years. Immediately, your mind goes back and you say, I know that song. I know the tune. I know the words. It just comes back to you naturally. That's the power of singing. It's the power of worship. It's the power of the truth of God's word set to music. It's the reason that the biggest book in this Bible... The, the book with the most chapters is a song book. A song book. It's to take the truth of God and to drive it not just into your head but into your heart so deep that you can't dislodge it. 
And that's why Paul, in this letter, when he's writing to people who aren't quite so sure about the supremacy of Jesus, how can I take the supremacy of, of Jesus and drive it into their hearts so that it is there firmly entrenched in their faith? I'm going to include a song. And so in Colossians 1, 15 to 20, we have a song. We have a hymn. I'm going to spare you from me singing it this morning, but we are going to talk about it. Here's the big idea of the passage. Jesus Christ is Lord of creation, and Jesus Christ is Lord of redemption. Two stanzas. Verse 15, 16, 17, Jesus is Lord of creation. Verse 18, 19, 20, stanza 2, Jesus is Lord of redemption. You'll see the parallel nature of these stanzas as we dig into it. Let me tell you about a book I read this week. The book is called Strange Rites by Tara Isabella Burton. The subtitle is New Religions for a Godless World. And as far as I can tell, this lady, I've never heard of her till I read this book, this lady is not a Christian. She's not a follower of Jesus Christ. She did attend a divinity school, but I don't think that she identifies as a follower of Jesus. In the book, she talks about a lot of different ways of thinking about the world. Here's a few of them. Harry Potter fandom. And I don't mean like, have you seen Harry Potter? But I mean like fandom, legit fandom. Wellness culture, magic and Wicca, the LGBTQ movement, social justice, transhumanism. That's a technology thing where you're trying to upload your brain into some sort of computer and then you're gonna live forever and you escape death on and on and on, and alt-right atavism, okay? This is a lot of stuff that she's talking about in this book. She looks at all these things, and she says all of these people, they live in the West, they live among us, they are us right now. This is how people view the world, this is how people think about the world, and most of these people do not have any place for what you and I would call God. That's why these are new religions for a godless World. These are ways about thinking about the world that do not put God at the center. They put something else or someone else at the center. And so this lady looks at all of these worldviews, all of these ways of thinking about life on this earth. And you know what she says? She says they're all religions. They don't call themselves religions. They don't think of themselves as religion, but they all function as religions, and this is what she means, writing as a sociologist. All of these ways of thinking provide people with these four things, meaning, purpose, community, and ritual. So she's just writing as a sociologist. She's just looking at life as she sees it, and she's saying all these people, they think they're without God, they think they're anti-religious, but really they're doing exactly what religions always do. They're finding a way to obtain meaning in this world what is real and what is true. And they're finding a way to establish their purpose. What is it that they ought to be doing in this life? And they found a community. Many times they found it online. The internet has connected people in unique ways where people just like you, who think just like you and feel just like you are suddenly connected with you. You have community, people who are like you. And you have rituals, things that you do over and over and over again when you're with these people in your community that reinforce what you believe. It's just a sociological take on religion, even amongst people who say they're not religious. It's a fascinating book. At the end, it has absolutely no hope. She offers no course correction. She just comes to the end and says, well, that's the way it is, and we'll see what happens next. 
And as I read the book, I kept thinking, this is spot on. This is exactly right. There's all these people in the world today. They think they're not religious. They think they have cut God out of their life. But really, they are still trapped in a religious system that provides them with meaning, purpose, community, and ritual. And as I read the book, I'm thinking about us and preaching and singing and prayer and fellowship, fajita cookouts, all the things that we do together. And I'm thinking, you know, as a pastor, I hope that our church provides people with these things, with meaning, what's true, what's real, with purpose. This is the way that you ought to live your life. With community, with people who think and believe just like you do, who will walk alongside you, and with ritual, things that we do when we're together to reinforce all of this stuff. But I also kept thinking as I'm reading, and I'm thinking about those four things, meaning, purpose, community, ritual. I keep thinking, something's missing. Something's missing. I mean, we do all that stuff as a religious group, meaning, purpose, community, ritual. We do all that stuff, but what's missing? And then I come to Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And the answer is the ultimate Sunday school answer. It's not that something is missing. It's that someone is missing. It's Jesus. Right? What we do here provides you with all of those sociological functions of religion. But the bedrock identity marker of who we are as Christian people isn't the externals of our religious movement. It's Jesus. The bedrock that we build on and that we believe in when we gather together as God's people isn't some sociological study. It's Jesus. We believe that he is the preeminent one the supreme one, and that's what Paul's writing about in Colossians 1. So let's talk about this song. Jesus is at the center of this song. Stanza 1, Jesus is the Lord of creation. We'll start with this idea. Jesus is God in human flesh. He's God in human flesh. Look what Paul says in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. The Greek word Paul uses there is akon, spelled in English, it would be E-I-K-O-N, akon, icon. It's where we get the English word icon, I-C-O-N. It's a picture, it's a representation. He is the picture, the spitting image, the perfect representation of the invisible God. Jesus allows us to see the invisible God in the flesh. When you read that verse, Colossians 1.15a, it ought to make your mind go to the prologue, the opening of John's gospel where we read these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. No one has ever seen God, the invisible God. No one has ever seen him, but, John says, the only God who is at the Father's side, that is the Word, who was with him and was him, The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He's the icon. He's the image of the invisible God. You understand that the Gnostic idea in Colossae would have said Jesus is not God in human flesh. He would never take on human flesh. And the Bible says, yes, he did. The story of the Bible, as it unfolds in the New Testament, is the story of the invisible God taking the form of, of the creature, the only creature that he created in his image, a human being. 
John 1.14, the word became flesh. It's a direct assault to the ideas of Gnosticism that God would never, never lower himself to taking on physical matter. He did in Jesus Christ. He's the God-man. He is God in human flesh. Secondly, Jesus is the creator of all that exists. He's the creator of all that exists. Look at verse 15b through 17a. He's the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the creator of all that exists. When you look at that word in verse 15, he is the firstborn of all creation. There's a lot of confusion about that word. In fact, I read a state of theology study, partnership between Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway. They polled church-going people, people like you. Not average people on the street, but the elite, you guys. And they asked them this question, true or false? True or false? Jesus is the first thing that God created. Unfortunately, a majority of church-going people in the United States said that that statement was true. Jesus was created by God. Maybe they would appeal to a verse like this. He's the firstborn of creation. But that's not what the word means in this passage. It's not what the word means in a biblical context. The word is pointing to preeminence and supremacy. For example, in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, David is referred to as the firstborn. Do you know the story of David? Do you remember his birth order? Last. God said he's the firstborn. He's the head, he's the top, he's the preeminent one, he's the supreme one in God's plan of redemption at that time. That's what this passage is saying. He's the firstborn of creation. He's the preeminent one, the supreme one. Let me put it to you differently. In verse 16, all things were created, heaven and earth, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, they were created through Jesus And for Jesus. The logic of that verse demands that you take everything that exists and put it into two categories. Uncreated things and created things. And the text says everything in the created category was created by Jesus. There is no third category of God creating Jesus first and then Jesus creating everything else. All of the things that have been created, all of them, were created by Jesus. He belongs in the uncreated category. And as the creator, verse 16, he created thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. What Paul's talking about here is not human government or human leaders. He's talking about spiritual beings, personal spiritual beings, what we might call angels or demons. The kinds of beings that the Colossians thought were out there controlling their everyday lives and they were terrified of these beings. In fact, when we get to Colossians 2, we're going to talk about these thrones and dominions and rulers, authorities. They come back up in Colossians 2. Paul's going to tell us that these spiritual forces, some of these spiritual beings are actually standing behind false teaching, false religion, false worldviews, and false ideologies. They are real. They are out there. But Paul's point in chapter 1 is that the people in Colossae don't have to be afraid of them. Do you know why? 
It's because they know Jesus. And he created the thrones and the dominions and the rulers and the authorities. They exist because he told them to exist. And they ultimately exist for his glory. You don't have to be afraid of them. You don't have to try to appease them. They exist for and because of Jesus, the creator of all things. Thirdly, Jesus is sustaining all that he created. This is the end of verse 17 I read just a moment ago. In him all things hold together. What is the all things in verse 17? It's everything that's ever been created. Every grain of sand, every molecule, every human being, every human institution, every planet, every star, every solar system, every galaxy, the entire universe, everything that has been created holds together because of Jesus. That reminds me, in expanded form, of what you read in Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. You could say the icon, the image of the invisible God. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. All things hold together in Jesus. And he literally upholds the existence of the universe by his word. When you begin to think about Jesus in those terms, you realize he's supreme. He's preeminent. He's first place and there is not even a distant second. He is the Lord over creation. He's God in human flesh. He created all things, and he upholds it by the word of his power. That's stanza one. Now let's talk about stanza two. Jesus is the Lord of redemption. Lord of redemption. We'll start with this. Jesus is the source and the authority of the church. Verse 18, he's the head. Circle the word head. The head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn. There's that word again. The firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent, circle it, supreme, first place. He's the head, he's the firstborn, he's supreme, he's preeminent in the church. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 28, Paul's talking to the elders at Ephesus, and he says, Jesus Christ obtained the church with his blood. It's his. We exist as the people of God, as the church, Because of Jesus. He is the source of who we are. Our existence goes back to his life, his death, and his resurrection. And he's the authority. He's the head of the church. The preeminent one in the church. Not your favorite pastor. Not a board of directors. Not a group of elders. Not a group of deacons. Not a written statement of bylaws and constitution. The ultimate authority in any church is Jesus. He's the head. He's the firstborn. He's the preeminent one. He's the supreme one. Secondly, Jesus is God in human flesh. And you'll notice the parallel. He's God in human flesh. Verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Was Jesus like a little bit God and mostly man? 
Did he get like a third of the Trinity, but not really all of God? This is what Paul says. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Truly God took on human flesh. This is Christmas. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. Honest to goodness, don't lie. How many of you have a Christmas tree up in your house? Somebody does, I know it. You don't want to admit it. I singled out Tammy Dooley in the first service. Caitlin, did you get your tree up? Is it coming soon? When Caitlin puts her tree up and Avery starts rolling his eyes, Caitlin's going to say, Avery, it's biblical. Christmas is biblical. All I'm trying to do is get in spirit with Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. Celebrate Christmas. Why would we only celebrate it one day a year? Can you take in the, the bigness of this miracle? Listen to what it says. Colossians 1, 19. In Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, truly human, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The God-man. Truly God, fully God, truly human, fully human, an amazing miracle. We celebrate it one day a year. Caitlin's going to celebrate it for the rest of the year. She's going to put a tree up. It's God in human flesh. Thirdly, Jesus is restoring all that he created. Not only is he sustaining it, but he's now restoring it. Verse 20. Volumes have been written about verse 20. Colossians 1.20. Through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself, to God, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Volumes have been written about that verse trying to tease out what does it mean that all things have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. I'll give you a couple answers that I think are wrong. One answer is that in the end, all people will go to heaven. All things are reconciled, heaven and on earth. So in the end, regardless of what happens here, regardless of how people's spirituality and faith plays out, whether they know Jesus, in the end, everybody goes to heaven. Colossians 1.20 says it. I don't think so. I don't think that's what Colossians 1.20 is saying, and I know for certain that's not what the rest of the Bible is saying. So I don't think that's the best interpretation. Here's another option. Some people say he's talking about demons, humans and demons, and he's saying that fallen humans and fallen demons will have a chance at redemption, at salvation, that there will be a, a salvation in the spiritual realm. Again, I don't think that's what he's saying at all. I don't think there's a shred of biblical evidence anywhere else to suggest that. In fact, I think there's much biblical evidence to the contrary of that. So what does he mean? He's reconciling all things, things in heaven and things on earth. I think the closest passage that helps you understand Colossians 1.20 is Romans 8. We don't have time to read it. We don't have six months. We only have 35 minutes. This afternoon, you can read Romans 8. And in Romans 8, Paul makes this very simple case. He says, look, when Adam and Eve sinned because they had been given dominion and authority over creation, not only were they placed under a curse, but all of the cosmos was placed under a curse. Everything that they had dominion over was impacted by their sin. We live in a fallen, broken world. And I don't have to give you example after example after example to prove that. You know it. This world is a broken, busted up, fallen place. And Romans 8 says this, Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose from the dead to redeem sinful human beings, to bring them back into a relationship with God, and to redeem and restore 
all of the things that God created that are suffering under a curse. In fact, in Romans 8, Paul says that creation itself is groaning and waiting for the day of redemption. That's the all things. It's not saying every person is going to heaven. It's not saying demons can get saved at an altar call. It's saying that all of creation is now under a curse. And the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is leading us to a day when all of it will be made new. And Romans 8 points to Revelation 21, where there is a new heaven and a new earth, and the redeemed people of God live with God in a restored, redeemed, perfected earth. That's the hope that we celebrate as Christians, that Jesus Christ is Lord of creation, and he's the Lord of redemption. That's what we celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not you and I getting together and taking the cracker and the cup and saying, God, I've been a pretty good person this week. I think I'm worthy to take this. I haven't said any bad words. I didn't curse at that person on 42nd Street. I didn't steal. That's not what we're doing in the Lord's Supper. When we take the Lord's Supper, we come to God and we say, God, we're sinful people. God, we have made a mess of ourselves and this world, a complete mess. And our only hope is that we know the one who is Lord of creation and Lord of redemption. You want to know what we're celebrating in the Lord's Supper? Look at Colossians 1. Look at verse 12. We are giving thanks in the Lord's Supper. We are giving thanks to the Father who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Left to ourselves, we don't qualify. But through Jesus Christ, God has qualified us for this inheritance. Look at verse 13, Colossians 1.13. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. He saved us from the domain of darkness and he put us into the kingdom of his son Jesus. Look at verse 14. In him we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sins. That's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. It all leads up to the end of this song, Colossians 1.20 The Lord's Supper is a celebration of the fact that we have peace with God because of the death of Jesus on the cross. He made peace with us. We were his enemies. And he made us his friends. He made us his children. He made us his people. How? It's by sending his son to die for our sins on the cross. That's what we're celebrating and that's what we're giving thanks for when we take the Lord's Supper together. So, this morning, if you are not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, We could not be more thrilled that you're here. We're grateful that you got to hear what Colossians 1, 15 to 20 says about Jesus. But if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you would not celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. But maybe you would pray about it. Maybe you would think about what it means to become a follower of Jesus Christ, to agree with God about your sin and to look to Jesus for salvation. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and you've obeyed the Lord's command to be baptized, we invite you to celebrate with us. We invite you to give thanks for what God has done to make peace with us through the death of his son on the cross. So I'm gonna give you just a minute to pray individually to thank God. We take the Lord's Supper together, but we also take it as individuals. And so I wanna give you a moment just to talk to the Lord, to thank the Lord, uh, to give him praise for all that he's done. And then here in just a minute, we'll take the Lord's Supper together.